0: Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a news podcast made possible by members of The Local. We're recording this episode on Thursday, the 31st of August, and this is our first week back after the summer break, and we're mostly going to be talking about the story that has dominated the headlines for months, namely how Sweden and the wider world have reacted to a spate of Quran burnings in the country and how the security situation has deteriorated to the point that Sweden increased its terror threat level in the middle of August. I'm your host, Paul O'Mani, and with me here in Stockholm are two media company chiefs, the locals James Savage and Julia Aga from the Arabic language news service Al-Compass. And we're also joined from Malmö by the locals Becky Waterton. Who's been keeping a very close eye on some of the stories we'll be talking about? Julia, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, you've been on here before. Hope you had. Uh, have you had a good summer aside from everything that's been going on yes, in the news? Yes,
2: absolutely. <laughs> very good. very typical Swedish summer. One week in Spain.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks on the
2: countryside. So yeah, perfect.
0: And how about uh,
3: the rest of you, James, Becky? How was your summer? Yeah, I had I had some I, I had three weeks in the countryside and um, it was very wet. <laughs> As anyone who spent the summer in Sweden will um, recognize. A week after next, I'm going to
4: Tuscany. Oh, lovely.
3: Get some sunshine, I hope.
4: I was in Sweden and it was wet and then I went to the UK and it was wet (laughs) and that was my holiday.
0: I was in Berlin for a week which was uh, which was not wet at all it was lovely actually that was kind of the highlight for me and then I was in Sweden for the rest and it was wet as well.
3: But I mean let's face it I mean this summer has not just been wet it's been horrendous I mean the flooding has been terrible in some places and you know around where I have my summer house there were pretty bad floods and then I guess the rest of Europe was burning.
0: Okay, a lot has happened since we were last in the studio at the end of June. So we thought we'd start off by running through a timeline of the main events in the Quran burning crisis. Becky, can you start us off?
4: Yeah, so... The story really starts around Easter last year when a Dane named Rasmus Paludan, the leader of the right-wing nationalist anti-Islam, anti-immigrant party Stramkurs, or Hardline, started publicly burning copies of the Quran in areas with a large Muslim population. This sparked riots from counter-demonstrators, some of whom attacked police in cities across Sweden. And then in those Easter riots, around 100 police officers were injured and more than 40 people were arrested in, in a couple of Swedish cities. So Norrköping, Linköping, Landskrona, Örebro, Malmö and Stockholm. So that's kind of where it all starts.
0: Yeah, we talked about it a lot at the time. So we can put a, a link to our main sort of podcast episode from back then in the notes. Why did uh, Rasmus Paladin want to burn copies of the Quran?
4: So again, if we go back in time here to 2019... He does it for political reasons, essentially. So he first started doing this in Nørrebro, which is uh, an area of Copenhagen with a high immigrant population, a few months ahead of the 2019 Danish election to kind of gain support for his party, which actually was only 0.2% off the threshold for entering the Danish parliament that year. He has two convictions in Denmark for inciting racial hatred due to this. And then Sweden actually initially issued him with a two-year ban from entering the country in 2020, but then he applied for Swedish citizenship. His dad is Swedish... They couldn't kind of refuse him entry to Sweden once he got citizenship. And that's why, that's the same reason behind him burning Korans in Sweden in 2022, because we had an election September 2022, and he was doing it in the run up to the election to kind of get support for his anti Islam party.
0: Yeah. And he ran, he, he ran for election in the end, didn't he? But it didn't, no, really, it didn't, really,
4: get anywhere. didn't really work yeah. out.
0: Okay. And so the fact that the police allowed his demonstrations to go ahead is obviously a really big talking point and has been all summer. And we'll get back to some of the legal questions in a little bit. But let's continue with our timeline now. and we'll jump to January of this year, when Rasmus Paladin again decided he was going to burn a copy of the Islamic religion's holy book, this time outside the Turkish embassy of all places. Now, looking back with a few months perspective, James, can you talk about what happened that day and how significant it was, particularly in regard to Sweden's application to join NATO?
3: Well, what happened that day is that Paladin came back to Sweden and burned the Quran again outside the Turkish embassy, as you're saying, which as well as provoking demonstrations in Turkey and in other Muslim-majority countries, led to Turkey stalling talks on NATO's accession. Interestingly, he was enticed to come to Sweden by two people with connections to both the Sweden Democrats and to Russia. Chang Frick, who's a provocateur who makes regular appearances on the Sweden Democrats' TV channel Riks, and who used to work for Russia Today as a stringer, and a reporter for the far-right site Exact Shufira, which is run by a former Sweden Democrat MP and an MP who has a a record of praising Russia. So there were quite a lot of things going on here and quite a lot to unpick. It led to the NATO talks being put on hold for some time. It led eventually to Finland joining NATO without Sweden.
0: So that was January. If we fast forward now to the end of June, uh, the 28th to be exact, we saw the emergence of a new Quran burner um, called Salwan Momika, who burned a copy of the Quran at Platzen in central Stockholm. First of all, who is Salwan Momika?
3: Well, he was a political activist in Iraq um, and came to Sweden as a refugee. He was granted three years residency in 2021. Mm. He has said he supports the Sweden Democrats and has a record now of burning Korans on numerous occasions. He also has a conviction in Sweden for threatening a man with a knife.
0: Yeah. His demonstration was really the starting point, uh, Becky, wasn't it, for widespread international protests and condemnation?
4: Yeah, I'd say that even though inside Sweden, Paladin's protests definitely had more of a reaction, I'd say Momika's protests have definitely had a lot more international attention than Palodans ever did. And much less attention. Like, I think the, the counter responses to Mumika's protests have been much more restrained.
0: Yeah. And Mumika was back a few weeks later with uh, a plan to burn a copy of the Quran outside the Iraqi embassy in Stockholm on July 20th. James, can you remind us how that played out?
3: Well, he turned up with the Quran. And while people at the scene say they didn't actually see it burn, mainly because he couldn't ma- manage to set it alight, light, he tried. <laughs> right. Um, but he did stamp on it, which it's been pointed out it's for many muslims an even more offensive act against yeah, the quran yeah. um so counter protesters turned up here to express their disgust for 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 momika but it's it's important to remember that in in terms of the timeline this came the day after the swedish embassy in baghdad was stormed and set on fire yeah. and that was in response to the fact that this demonstration by Momica had been approved by the swedish police yeah the uh, storming of the swedish embassy was incited by the shia leader Mokhtada al- al-sada uh, in response to the quran burning
0: mm. and then there was a further Escalation in the Islamic world in the days after that, Becky, wasn't there?
4: Yeah, so 20th and 22nd of July, there are a number of Middle Eastern countries, so Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia condemned Sweden for allowing the Quran burning to go ahead. Uh, Iran's head of state and spiritual leader Ali Khamenei accused Sweden's government of trying to launch a war on the Islamic world. Hezbollah, the Shia Islamist political party and militant group in Lebanon, called for Sweden's ambassador there to be ordered to return to Sweden. Saudi Arabia and Jordan both summoned their respective Swedish ambassadors, Turkey, Syria and Qatar, all condemned the demonstration. And then there, there was also a number of countries with large Muslim populations that have placed an embargo on Swedish products or Swedish companies in protest.
0: So it was quite quite dramatic. So let's um, end this roundup on August the 17th, which was the date when the security police said they were raising the terror threat level from three to four on a five-point scale. James, how did the security forces explain their reasoning here?
3: Well, they said this wasn't due to a specific threat, but down to a general deterioration in the security situation. So this deterioration 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 was partly due to the Quran burnings, but also to the spread of a conspiracy theory, which I think we've talked about before, uh, in parts of the Muslim world, which claims that the Swedish social services routinely kidnap Muslim children. It's an absolute crazy conspiracy theory, but it has been uh, spread far and wide. The Swedish national security advisor, Henrik Landerholm, said in a separate statement that Sweden had gone from being seen as a legitimate target by Islamist extremists to being seen as a priority target.
0: And what does it mean? What does the heightened terror threat entail for people living in Sweden?
4: I think on a personal level, there's probably a few people that are a bit more worried or cautious about something happening, at least directly after the announcement was made. Maybe a few people that are thinking more carefully about whether they feel safe in certain areas, feel safe in crowded areas. I know that the Swedish women's football team, after they came third in the World Cup, their homecoming celebrations were meant to be a big public affair and they, they ended up scaling it down and just having like a little celebration in a, in a restaurant. But I mean, having said that, official advice from the authorities... Life goes on as usual, business as usual. In general, the police have had the same advice for years, which is be aware of what's going on around you, report anything suspicious to your authorities. Um, they've got some specific advice about what to do, how to prepare if, if there ever is an attack, which which is the same advice they've been saying for years. And I think something that's quite important, at least something I, I think very is very important to mention, is that if anything does happen and the chance of a terrorist attack actually happening is low the chance of you being affected by an attack personally is low just don't spread any rumors or disinformation i think that's a major thing like there's there's always rumors about oh this is going to happen on this day or people have seen strange things happening here and that just don't spread that if, if it's not coming from an official source don't spread it and that's also advice from the police
3: Yeah, I think this is something, you know, having had experiences of ourselves of reporting on ongoing terror attacks in places like Paris, for example, one of the difficulties for us reporting was was sifting out rumours from facts. And when something is ongoing, if it's a big sort of coordinated terrorist attack, the rumours fly around like crazy. So just ignore Twitter or at least ignore all non-official sources on Twitter. And right now it's very hard to tell the official <laughs> sources from the unofficial sources on Twitter and, and other social media. Be very careful with that and um, only go through, you know, official sources, reliable news sources.
4: There's something that when we spoke to Magnus Runstop he said something like, be aware but not alarmist. Which I thought was a good a good way of saying it. Like, be aware of what's going on around you. If you see anything that is really, really seriously strange and seriously suspicious, then tell the authorities. But not if you just, you know, don't don't start reporting your neighbors. Like, it has to actually be something that is seriously different from from kind of normal life.
0: So he's, he he conducts research on on terrorism. And yeah, as you say, we had an interview with him, and we can we can post a link uh, to that interview in the notes. Uh, Julia, can we bring you in here? So you've got a lot of readers and viewers um, at al Compass who are Muslims and there was a report released by Sweden's anti-discrimination ombudsman back in May showing that this is a group particularly vulnerable to discrimination in Sweden. What are people telling you about what it's been like living in Sweden as a Muslim in the past year, really, since the far-right Sweden-Democrats began acting as a support party for the government and right through this crisis precipitated by the Quran burnings.
2: I mean, the public debate has definitely shifted tone, (laughs) the way we talk about Muslims and Islam is quite different and more radical than we used to uh, just a year ago or two years ago. And um, uh, we interviewed Magdalena Andersson yesterday, uh, the Social Democratic Party leader. And she said that a 12-year-old boy had asked her, what do you think about Islam? And that just says so much about where we are, uh, that kids are are being fed with the message that um, you're supposed to have an opinion about this uh, this And not only kids. I mean, th- that's what it's become. It's become politics uh, to have an opinion about this religion. And what's also quite unfortunate is that we're bundling up uh, Muslims as one like homogeneous group. There are millions of hundreds of millions of Muslims in the world. They come from uh, Indonesia, Malaysia to Iraq to Nigeria. Islam is not a culture. It's not an ethnicity. It's a religion. So we can't say that Muslims are Uh, so and so. So that's one thing that Muslims in Sweden feel that they're being grouped as one. And the truth is, you can't really know a person. It can be a Muslim, but you can be Completely, like secular, you can be like a cultural Muslim, like uh, Moham de Merak, for example, center party leader. But you can also be extremist Muslim, of course. So it's it's super. The the scale is very uh, wide. <laughs>
0: yeah. And has there been a lot of interest in this story among among your readers?
2: Yes, of course, absolutely. It's been top uh, like headline uh, news all over uh, this summer. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks for that, Julie. We'll bring you back mm-hmm. in a moment, Becky. Um, I mentioned earlier that we'd come back to the legal issues surrounding the quran burning protests a lot of people have been asking why the swedish police allowed these demonstrations to go ahead can you explain that
4: yeah i mean the short answer is it's because they have to so the public order act which is the act that kind of dictates when you're allowed to protest and the rules around protesting says that the police are only allowed to refuse a permit for a demonstration if it is and this is a quote Necessary to do so with respect to public order or safety at the gathering or as a direct consequence of the gathering in its immediate surroundings. And that's really important, the direct consequence. Because freedoms of assembly, demonstration association are all very, very strongly protected under the constitution, the police have to be able to show that there's a concrete security threat directly related to a specific Koran burning. So like the theoretical risk that a riot could break out or the risk that it could raise Sweden's terror threat is not enough in itself for the police to refuse to issue a permit. And I think it's also important to say that it, it's not that they're approving Quran burning protests because they agree with them or there's some kind of opinion as to whether they're acceptable or not. It's that there is legally no framework for them to be able to deny a request. And they, they did actually try and ban them. They, they, they said no to a couple of requests last year based on the argument that it would... It would um, raised Sweden's terror threat, and that was overruled by the the Swedish courts, the administrative courts. So that's why they've, there was a break for a couple of months, and they and then they started, more Korans were burnt again.
0: We we spoke about um, Rasmus Paladin earlier, and Swedish prosecutors called him in for questioning on suspicion of inciting racial hatred in connection with last Easter's uh, Quran burnings, but he has not come back to Sweden for questioning. But even if he or anyone else were found guilty of hate crimes for burning a copy of the Quran, would it make any difference in terms of whether police uh, give the all clear for a demonstration?
4: I mean, as the law currently stands, no. A request for a protest can't be denied, even if the person submitting the request says they're planning to commit a crime. So, I mean, we can use a recent example. momika burnt a Quran uh, in July or June, I think, when there was a fire ban in Stockholm. He said... In yeah. his protest that he was going to burn something, which was actually illegal at that point in Stockholm. But the police were unable to ban, they, they were unable to deny the protest, even though he said he was going to do something illegal. So if it was established in law that burning the Quran is definitely a hate crime, you would still be able to submit a protest request threatening to burn it. Unless the police change or that the government changes the protest law, which would allow police to deny protests where a crime will be committed. So, I mean, even if we do right. establish it's officially a hate crime, which hasn't actually been done in law yet, there's, it wouldn't necessarily stop these from happening.
0: Julia, uh, what kind of reactions have you been seeing from readers of Al-Compass to the Quran burnings and how Sweden has dealt with the situation?
2: I mean, the Quran burnings have been very hurtful for a lot of people. You have to remember that uh, people escaping war uh, who are traumatized, uh, for a lot of them, religion is the only thing that has kept them sort of, uh, or or, or it's been the only thing that has remembered them of who they were or who they are, connection to their identity when they come to this new uh, country, this very different country. Um, And so it's been very hurtful for a lot of people. But then... I would say the majority almost are not reacting that much. It's more just like uh, we should ignore him we should ignore this action uh, but but the majority are are not really reacting um neither sad nor like angry they're more just kind of saying that we should ignore what's going on and they're trying to calm down the situation a little bit uh, who are just you know regular people uh, who just want to live their lives and, and go to work and don't really want to make uh, have political discussions about their religion that's a very general opinion among our readers uh, not only Muslims. I mean, it's this has become a topic for, for all our readers. Uh, but then there are some people who are just a little frustrated and don't understand how can this continue to be allowed, especially given the consequences we see now for security consequences. Why can't Sweden stop this? And they, you know, they they say that this should be a uh, group, like the hatred. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called in English. The
3: incitement to racial hatred. Yeah. I
2: think is.
4: I think it's officially mean. like yeah. incitement against an ethnic group, but it, it includes like everything from race, ethnicity, religion, mm. sexuality, anything, yeah, any kind of exactly. group of people. Yeah. It's literally incitement against a group of people.
2: Yeah, so they understand that it's freedom of speech, but they don't agree that it is just freedom of speech. They think it's also um, a hate crime.
4: Touching on what you're saying there about um, a lot of your readers kind of saying we should, you know, let's just ignore this guy, don't don't react to him burning these Qur'ans. I think there is a real reason why there have not been any riots. And I think that a lot of credit needs to be given to people in the Muslim community for like really handling it well, you know, controlling it, explaining to people, don't react. I, I've not been at any of the protests or any of the demonstrations where he's been he's been burning these Qur'ans. But in all the reporting I've seen, there's there's been, I think, that when Salman Mika was was burning a... Quran outside a mosque in Stockholm the imam there was just getting everyone in like come in come into the come into the mosque don't pay attention it's okay Islam is in your hearts that kind of thing and that really touched me uh, and I think that the whole way it's been handled by the Muslim community in Sweden is really, really impressive, I would say.
2: I mean, we learned something, I think, uh, from the whole <laughs> our whole society here in Sweden. We learned something from the riots last year that uh, we can't just shut down this whole debate uh, like we did last year when there was, I mean, there was never a discussion about this, uh, like burning the Quran Should it be legal or not? Uh, how are people feeling? What's going on? There was never, ever a debate about it. It was just uh, news about, Uh, the rights uh, and the violence and and this year we've seen much more of a debate, and obviously I think a lot has to do with the NATO process that the government has been wanting to show a different perspective and, and really look into it. But I think that's very important. And, and uh, so this year, for example, we've seen imams write debate articles. We didn't have that last year at all. Uh, so now they also have a voice in this.
5: Mm.
3: I think it's really fantastic that Al Compass is there to show that that Muslims in Sweden have a variety of different views, and I think it's quite it's quite it's quite frustrating perhaps when you see them portrayed in some of the reporting as having some sort of monolithic opinion about this. It's like Muslims are also worried about national security. Mm, Muslims, Muslims some Muslims are obviously extreme you know deeply offended by by, by what's happened um, many have are of the view that you should turn the other cheek and that's that's the, that's a, it's sort of reflective of Sweden, Swedish society in general. In I a way. think
4: people also forget that like a lot of the Muslims that are in Sweden have actually fled from these countries that are now threatening Sweden.
2: Yeah, and the international organizations and uh, countries abroad that are condemning Sweden, they don't represent Muslims in Sweden. I wouldn't say that's the general. What they say is not representative of what no. the Swedish uh, Muslims think.
6: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
0: Um, Just to look at it from a slightly different perspective, the government said this week that the, the facts about Sweden's handling of the Quran burnings are being twisted and manipulated in foreign disinformation campaigns. And they specifically mentioned Russia and Iran as being behind some of these. Julia, the last time you were on this podcast, we spoke about this campaign that I think James mentioned earlier, a campaign incorrectly claiming that Swedish social services were kidnapping Muslim children. Can you see that your readers have been exposed to disinformation again this summer? And what are you doing at Al Compass to counteract this?
2: Mm. Yes, absolutely. We've seen um, uh, the biggest uh, disinformation surrounding this these events is um, that it's been portrayed that the Swedish government uh, is sanctioning or allowing these uh, manifestations, uh, when in fact the government really doesn't have anything to do with them. Um, so there's a big misunderstanding about the police uh, authority or how Swedish authorities in general are, uh, the fact that they're independent uh, and that it's not Ulf Christosom who says that you can or cannot perform this manifestations so it's up to the police who have to follow the law and don't even go into what's going to happen during the manifestation so they skip a lot of steps uh, and the, the big picture has been that Sweden is burning Qurans uh, when it's the, the truth is it's quite far from that. I mean, Sweden is allowing it, but it's not really uh, the same thing. <laughs> so that's the biggest disinformation. I'm not sure this is disinformation, but a lot of people are saying that Sweden is so much against extremists. Uh, we say it all the time and we're we're working against extreme uh, organizations and all of that. But at the same time, we're allowing extremists to have a platform uh, because they view Rasmus Paladin and Salman Mumik as extremists. So how does that work? It's double standard. So a lot about the Swedish sort of double standard uh, is being uh, said.
3: I think it's worth pointing out with Salva Momica that by all appearances very much trying to Make it look as though this is Sweden burning Qurans because he always sets up the picture of himself with a little Swedish flag in front of when he's burning the Koran. So the picture that goes out to the world is of a Koran burning in front of the Swedish flag. It's interesting, and I would I would love to know more about how he thinks around this.
4: Did you guys see the story? It was on Sued Svenskan. He's been live streaming all of them on TikTok. Um, been getting like you can give gifts to people on TikTok when you watch a live stream. So he's been earning money like three thousand krona. Every single time he does it,
2: yeah, and he's not the only one. I mean, we saw it in this uh, campaign that you mentioned, uh, Paul, the the against the social services. There were a lot of actors on who did live streams on TikTok, but also videos on YouTube that they, you know, earn money mm. on. So that's a very relevant uh, question for the social media platforms. What kind of responsibility are they? taking here. Uh, But I just want to answer your question, what we are doing (laughs) to counter the disinformation. Um, And uh, we, for example, last year, we interviewed the police uh, so that they could explain how they are, why they are allowing these manifestations. Um, And that article was the third most read article last year. So it really shows that people have Questions. They're wondering. Uh, they're not just angry. They they just don't. They're missing information. Um, so that's what we're doing a lot also this year. Just trying to fill the information gaps. And then also we're interviewed in media, international media. Arabic language media, like uh, TRT Arabic, uh, Al-Hurra, the the American Arabic language, and a lot more. I think we've been to like 15 different news uh, channels um, interviewed and where we explain how Swedish society works and the kind of general debate that's going on uh, right now.
0: And you've been interviewed quite a lot by Swedish media as well, which I think is also important because you're giving that perspective that's often lacking.
2: Exactly. Uh, So it's like both perspectives not yeah. not just give information to our readers but also have uh, let our readers sort of have a voice towards swedish society
3: yeah, yeah it's, i mean because i think often the tendency for, for for the swedish media is sometimes to find you find an imam who will have a very particular kind of perspective for example mm. and and that's and that's good and that perspective should come through but there's there's a there's a much wider um, Muslim and 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 Arabic uh, speaking community in Sweden that's that's very that's, that, that's much more diverse than that. Mm. Like thousands of secular Muslims you mentioned
0: who are often completely forgotten in the in the debate in Sweden. Mm.
2: Yeah. And they are also affected by the Quran burnings. Maybe they are not sad or or angry uh, specifically at these manifestations, but they can feel the Islamophobic yeah. uh, sentiment in the in the society. They you know the you mentioned the discrimination uh, reports, yeah. the discrimination in the workplace again. Muslims, of course, they are affected by that, Uh, even though they're not religious. If your name is Mohammed, you're still going to be affected (laughs) because Mm. you're a Muslim, uh, even though you're not religious.
0: If we turn back now to how Sweden has dealt with the Quran burnings, officials have basically said that their hands are tied by the constitution. And Denmark had taken a similar stance until last week when the government there presented a new draft law whereby anyone found guilty of the, quote, inappropriate treatment of objects of significant religious importance to a religious community could face up to two years in prison. Becky, is there any indication that Sweden will change its approach and move more in that direction?
4: There's not currently any kind of indication that they're going to completely ban burning Qurans or other holy books or symbols or anything. So what the government has done is launch an inquiry into kind of tweaking this public order law, which again is the the one that decrees the rules for proving or denying a a demonstration request so that you could ban a demonstration if you deem it to be representing a security threat. So you'd be able to ban Quran Mm. burnings because of the argument that they raise the terror threat of Sweden or the threat against Sweden. Um, so essentially, the police would be empowered to refuse a Quran-burning demonstration, as they could argue that it risks Swedish security by making Sweden a target. But the government has ruled kind of ruled out kind of a flat-out ban on burning holy books or similar religious icons.
0: Okay, thanks for that. And James, what are the arguments against doing what Denmark has done?
3: That it's a restriction on free speech, and that you should be free to not only criticize but also mock religions. There should be no ban on burning books of any kind, that all forms of free speech should be respected. Um, Of course, we do restrict free speech in some ways, and that's why it's a difficult argument. There are already restrictions on, for example, um, inciting racial hatred, um, and that is a restriction on free speech. But But the argument is that you shouldn't restrict free speech more than is absolutely necessary. Also, that Using national security, as the government is proposing, as a, uh, as, as, as a grounds for limiting free speech, could be seen as part of a, uh, the beginning of a slippery slope. If you restrict this particular example of free speech, this, this particular utterance on the basis of national security, what's next? And you can see that you know uh, that that an unscrupulous government in the future could use this against uh, free speech that that most of us would see as legitimate, even if in practice, in the case of the Quran burnings themselves, see them as illegitimate. Mm. So it's very, it is a very difficult, it is a very difficult area. And um, and I think that there are quite a lot of people across the spectrum in Sweden who are quite nervous about restricting um, free speech. And
4: yeah, so. it's also the the kind of aspect of if you say that you can ban a protest because it. It presents a risk to Sweden's security. That means that if anyone is particularly offended by something Sweden does or doesn't like what Sweden's doing, you can just threaten enough and then you'll get them to stop doing it.
3: And it's very difficult to distinguish between, you know, the politicians will make a law with one thing in mind, but then the police have that law that they can that yeah. they can use for things that the politicians had never even thought of and perhaps wouldn't have wanted when they when they came up with the law so it's very and i
4: mean swedish authorities as anyone listening to this podcast knows are famously inflexible so if there's a law in place Mm. that says you can do x y and z and you can't do anything else not in any circumstance no you can't make a exception for this then then they can't they can't just say oh no this this seems a bit stupid we'll do something else in this case like they have to follow the law to the letter and they don't have a choice so that's why you have to be so careful Mm. when you're making laws that you don't accidentally do something that is going to have unintended consequences. I met uh, a Finnish guy
2: uh, yesterday who said that, that Sweden has a little bit more freedom of speech than they have. And it actually has to do with uh, their geography, the fact that they have a border uh, against Russia and mm. Soviet. Uh, and so they have always had this security um, in mind. Mm. Uh, so that's why they have a little less freedom of speech, so to say <laughs> they still have this ban against burning holy... Uh, books for example and i think that's an interesting aspect because uh looking at our history in sweden we haven't really been in this situation before with this much threat i mean we haven't been in war in the no. same way and, and all of that so maybe that plays a part why we're so confused right now
3: <laughs> <laughs> very very much so and i think you know you see that i, I see that were lots of i when I have these conversations with lots of people who come from other countries that had much more of a sort of uh, a national security mindset, that they're saying, "Well, why doesn't Sweden just ban it?" I mean, mm. perfectly straightforward, isn't it? You know, even <laughs> e- even people from other democracies seem to think that this is this is a much more kind of straightforward thing than than it's seen in Sweden. There was, I know that Alistair Alister Campbell, who was Tony Blair's advisor, who's now runs an, an, an enormous podcast in the UK. He was he was he was flabbergasted by the fact that Sweden hadn't just gone out and banned Quran mm, burnings. Mm. Co- to be perfectly it's perfectly natural to him, but that's certainly not how it's seen here.
0: If we can end um, this episode on a kind of a domestic political note, the far right Sweden Democrats have become increasingly influential in Swedish politics ever since last year's election, and at the height of this summer's crisis, the head of the parliamentary justice committee, Rikard Jomsov, made inflammatory comments about the Muslim prophet Muhammad. How much of a problem is it for Prime Minister Ulf Christoson that his government is on a collision course with a party they rely so heavily on for support?
4: I mean, it doesn't look very good domestically that these two parties kind of very publicly disagree on this issue. It makes the coalition look weak. And it also raises questions internationally from countries which are kind of unhappy with how the Swedish government is handling this. I mean, it's all well and good to come out and say that your government doesn't condone these, these demonstrations and describes him as Islamophobic, but that statement always looks a bit weaker when you've high up members of the party supporting the government that are, are making statements about the prophet Muhammad himself. Like it caused a bit of an issue for the for the party both at home and abroad, or for the government at home and abroad. And I guess the real question here is whether the coalition will be able to survive or the the government coalition supported by the Sweden Democrats will be able to survive until the next election or whether we'll see it implode. The Sweden Democrats don't really have anywhere else to go. I can't see them joining the left bloc anytime soon. But they they could threaten to withdraw their support from key government issues if they decided that they didn't like what the moderates were doing anymore. And then I suppose at the other end of the scale, if if the moderates kind of pander too much, to the Sweden Democrats, the Liberals, could decide they've had enough. So it's a really a balancing act for Ulf to kind of keep all of the members mm. of his of his bloc on the reins and and keep everybody happy
3: mm. at the same time that a lot of the political parties in the block have very few options the liberals can't afford a general election because they're underneath they're under four percent the Sweden Democrats like you say don't have any other obvious home and the moderates really 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 want to be in government so that's probably what will, what will keep the coalition together
4: desperation mm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> lack of other options
4: yeah. <laughs>
0: Great. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for tuning in and a special thanks to those of you who are paying members. Your support is absolutely essential for us to be able to keep covering the news on the website and in this podcast. Our panellists today were the locals James Savage and Becky Waterton and Compass publisher Julia Aga. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paula O'Mahony, and we'll be back again next week. Until then, take care.
5: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
0: That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by the local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.